0: Hello, everyone.
1: This is Andrew. And this is Caleb, and welcome to our eighth installment on the American
0: Revolution and the Iroquois involvement in it. And today we're going to be talking about General Sullivan's expedition.
1: Now, Andrew, General John Sullivan, he's kind of a controversial character. Some people view it him as if he was just trying to do his duty and impress his general. And other people look at him kind of the way I picture Richard Sherman in the South. He's basically the Iroquois version of General Sherman in the Civil War.
0: Yes, and if you've never heard about General Sullivan before, let's just say that fire is his friend and he is going to burn a lot of stuff.
1: But before we get to John, why don't we sum up what happened last week?
0: Last time we talked a lot about Joseph Brandt and the loyalist group known as the Butler family and how they conducted a lot of raids into Pennsylvania and modern New York, which was mainly Iroquois homeland, but was also on the border of a lot of these frontier settlements.
1: And in doing so, raiding all of these towns, pressure is being put on the newly formed United States Congress, and particularly George Washington, to do something about it. These people are on the borders of the frontier, and they are the ones that are having their homes burned and pillaged, So people are starting to say, Washington,
0: if you want us to side with you, you better get up here and do something about this. So we see things from the other side. Brandt is trying to defend his Mohawk territory and Seneca and Cayuga territory because they realize that they need to go on the offensive if they want to prevent any more encroachment upon their lands.
1: And at the same time, the Oneida are found in this horrible situation where they end up being allied to the Americans, and half of the Tuscarora and chunks of the Onondaga are trying to stay neutral. Meanwhile, the Seneca and the Mohawk and the Cayuga are all for the British and fighting against the Americans. So it's created this horrible civil war throughout all of Iroquois.
0: So Washington comes up with a grand scheme, and originally he wants to put together an entire expedition which will go into the heart of Seneca and Cayuga territory, sweep in, destroy as many towns as they can, and then link up to attack Fort Niagara, thereby driving the British completely out of western New York.
1: Now, Andrew, it's important to mention on top of just attacking the Seneca and the Cayuga because they are attacking the frontiers of the newly found America, they also need to attack them because at this point the war in 1779 has kind of come to a stalemate. The British Army has found that they cannot be successful marching out into the open and attacking. Every time they do, George Washington and his men just fall back and just basically let the British Army peter out. So they've decided to just stay in the main cities and try and force George Washington to come to them. George Washington isn't biting, so it's come to the stalemate. So George Washington goes into siege mode. What's the first thing you do when somebody is held up in a city? You cut off their food supply. And guess who is supplying the British Army with more than half of their food? The Cayuga and the Seneca, who have some of the largest cornfields in the entire United States at the time. George Washington's plan, not only defend the American frontier, but go in and burn all the fields supplying food to the British.
0: Washington is able to do this as well because the British have also shifted strategy. They've formed what historians call the Southern Strategy, and that's where they focus more down in the Carolinas and Virginia to try and win the war because they thought that there were a lot more loyalists down there, kind of like how they thought that in upstate New York there were a lot of loyalists and Burgoyne found out otherwise. So that takes the pressure off Washington's main army. It puts more pressure on General Gates, who's now in charge down in the south. So Washington sees this as a golden opportunity to detach some of his men to fight into the New York frontier. So Washington needs to pick somebody to lead this expedition into Iroquois. His first guy for the job is Major General Charles Lee, but Lee kind of has a falling out with Washington. There's kind of a little bit of a conspiracy. You can read all about it if you want, but Lee has kind of a fall from grace. Next up, he tries to tap General Philip Schuyler, who's been over in Albany and helped with the uh, Burgoyne invasion. He kind of taps out, as well as Old Putt is real punting, and they give some various excuses. So then he finally offers the expedition to Horatio Gates before Gates ends up going to the South. Gates turns down the offer because of um, uh, health reasons, which seems to be what all politicians say when they don't want to do something. And so finally, his fifth choice is Major General John Sullivan, who was offered the command in March of 1779, and he graciously accepts. But who the heck is John Sullivan, Caleb? Well, Andrew, I bet you can't guess his heritage by his name. Since we have them in our own family, I would say that Sullivan is an Irish name.
1: Yeah, John Sullivan's about as Irish as they come. He wasn't born in Ireland, but uh, his father came over from Ireland and promptly had like 12 children in New Hampshire. And John Sullivan was the third, I believe. A really interesting man, a really bright guy, he uh, becomes a lawyer at a very young age and uh, rises up the ladder in New Hampshire. And when Congress declares war on the British... They appoint 12 original generals. They appointed four major generals and eight brigadier generals. And the most junior of the brigadiers was John Sullivan. Now, that's not to say that he was always put on the back burner in all of these campaigns because he was actually involved in nearly every single major battle, siege, and retreat in the entire American Revolution. He was at the Siege of Boston. He was at Long Island. He was at Trenton. He was at Princeton. He was at Brandywine, Germantown. And at one point, he was even up in that uh, famed, failed uh, attempt to take Canada that you may have read about. Now, Andrew, during the Battle of Long Island, he made a name for himself by famously standing his ground in a field completely surrounded by Hessian troops with just his pistols. Did he win? Uh, No. He ended up being captured... And the British ended up using him. They took his parole and they started using him as a messenger to the U.S. Congress because he could go through their lines without any grief. And this instantly started making a lot of people start to whisper that he was a traitor. He had a lot of enemies in Congress. And John Adams himself whispered to a colleague in Congress and said, it's a shame he was not shot instead of captured. But Washington really appreciated John Sullivan. And he would step in whenever they tried to uh, try him, which they tried to do all the time. They were always constantly trying to have courts of inquiry on his behavior. And none of them ever stuck, but I think they tried four throughout the American Revolution.
0: So did the British ever give him back? I'm guessing they did because he was going to lead this expedition, right? Yes.
1: Uh, Shortly before this, the British exchanged Sullivan for some equally high-ranking British officers who had been captured throughout the war. So when Sullivan comes back, he is really discouraged because even though he's a major general now, and he's been at every single battle, he has never been given an independent command. And he considered resigning and returning to New Hampshire when Washington tapped him on the shoulder and said, guess what? You're the first person that came to mind for this campaign, and I think only you can do it. First person, huh? The very first person. I want you to lead the Iroquois campaign. And his orders were short and simple. They weren't that short, but they were pretty simple. Well, I'll sum it up for you. March to Tioga, build a fort, destroy every hostile Iroquois village and farm you can find, and then come back.
0: But there's a lot of Iroquois villages and farms in upstate New York and Pennsylvania.
1: Yeah, I wonder if he's up for the task. Washington would go on to give Sullivan advice that he learned from serving with da Braddock at Braddock's defeat, you know, when they all got completely destroyed by all the the Native American warriors hiding. He told them things basically like fight on their level. When you're attacking, fight like they fight. Scream and give a war cry. Be brutal. It's better to attack than be attacked. And I think that that seems to be the case. If you look through the past 300 years of warfare, the people attacking always have the upper hand. Also, make sure you have extra men scouting ahead and double however many men you're going to put on your flanks, double it because it's so important to make sure they don't slip around behind you. And he also gave him some orders that a lot of people don't read. A lot of people, Andrew, use this campaign to, I would say, vilify George Washington. Uh, I've heard a lot of people make the argument that he hated Indians. I personally, throughout my readings, I have not come to that conclusion. And I've seen paragraphs taken from his orders that say to burn, capture, and kill every single Iroquois person you find. But the very next paragraph after that, uh, he says this, quote, After you have thoroughly completed the destruction of their settlements, if the Indians should show disposition for peace, I would have you encourage it, on the condition that they will give up Butler and Brant."
0: And so if you're looking at this from a military perspective, Washington is trying to find a way to bring the war to a speedy end to prevent raids from continuing to happen. And he thinks that the only way is through a scorched earth campaign, which honestly, Washington is not the first person to do this. And even Brandt has this idea. That's why he's raiding these farms, because he knows that these farms are supplying the Americans as well. Yep. It just comes down to war is horrible and there's atrocities committed on both sides.
1: Andrew, just the year before, Butler and Brant had come down into Cherry Valley and attacked and burned all these houses and communities, so Washington basically needed somebody to be held accountable for that attack. If he could get Butler and Brant, that would be all that he needed to appease the public. Sullivan would be given 3,000 men to command, and he would start in Easton, Pennsylvania. Meanwhile, an associate general, Clinton, would take 1,600 men from Albany and rendezvous at Tioga, which is right on the border of New York State and Pennsylvania today. If you look like halfway through the state and then border, that's kind of where it is.
0: Yes, and this Clinton is the brother of Governor George Clinton.
1: There would also be another general that would be bringing up several hundred men from Fort Pitt, uh, a general named Broadhead.
0: Yeah, and Daniel Broadhead would never actually end up linking up with this campaign. And we're going to talk about him in a little bit on the side, but since the two things never seem to overlap, we're going to talk about them separately.
1: But just so you know where Sullivan is in this, he imagines he's going to have two other generals helping him on this campaign because he doesn't know that, he, that Broadhead is never going to show up. Sullivan arrived in Easton on May 1779, and through Maine and June, he had people begin building a road through the Wyoming Valley, once again, don't think of Wyoming. Uh, if you're not that good with your geography, this is central Pennsylvania, the Poconos mountain range. He was short on food and supplies. It seems like this always happens. He didn't have enough men or, or food or horses or guns. But he set out marching on July 31st, 1779 with 700 cattle, 120
0: pack horses, and 120 bateaux. Which are like small boats. Flat bottom river boats. So the march was pretty long and hard. They finally got to Tioga after 12 days. And it's only about an 80-mile march, so... But you've got to go over the freaking Pocono Mountains. So when they finally arrive at Tioga, they're greeted by some old allies. The Oneida were there, and they wanted to serve as Sullivan scouts, including a couple of guys named Hanieri and Han Yost. At this time, Brant is many miles to the east, And he's teamed up with a loyalist man from Orange County named Cornelius Smith. And Smith is leading a group of guerrillas known as the Cowboys because they were raiding and stealing cattle. And Governor Clinton was so aggravated at this loyalist uh, rebel that he put a $1,200 bounty on his head. And Smith is eventually caught in January 1779 and hanged in Goshen, New York. A few months after that, Brant leads another raid into this town at Goshen, New York. There's a battle that takes place. The Americans get ambushed again, and they lose dozens more lives. But then Brant hears that Sullivan's coming up from Pennsylvania, and so he needs to head back to the Iroquois homeland to help defend it.
1: So on August 12th, Sullivan is at Tioga. He's waiting for his reinforcements from these other two generals, and he decides to send a secret scouting mission of eight men to quietly float down the river about 10 miles to spy on the village of Shemung. When they arrive, they see hundreds of Tory and Indians running all around. And it's important to note, Andrew, that at this point, it's not just the Iroquois and the Tories. There were actually a lot of Delaware, because in this area, there was a lot of uh, settlements that the Delaware had been relocated to. And a lot of them were siding with the Seneca and Cayuga. So, there's a lot of Delaware in this as well, the Lenape. And they're they're running all around and the spies cannot tell if they're running around preparing to attack or if they're running around preparing to flee. So, when they return to Sullivan, that's all they have to say. There was a lot of men and everybody was running around. So, Sullivan decides to take Washington's advice and be the one doing the attack instead of being attacked and prepares his men.
0: Yeah, he decides to send two regiments to go around the town and try and cut off the escape, while Sullivan takes three regiments and tries to smash them head on. It probably would have worked if anyone was in the village, but when they got there to smash it, they found it completely deserted. So I guess they found out that they were preparing to run away.
1: Yeah, the group of men that came around from behind could hear the cowbells walking away. And For those of you that don't know, it used to be uh, you'd put a cowbell on a lead cow, and you'd know where your herd was when it was out in the field. So they could hear the cows being driven away because they could hear the bell dinging back and forth. Except the Iroquois and the Lenape and the Tory were a little smarter than uh, everybody gave them credit for. Did they use the cows as a diversion? They did. They had the. I don't know if they actually had a cow or if they just had a guy banging on the cowbell. But some of Sullivan's men decided to charge after them to get a jump on them and they fell right into an ambush and were all killed. But the village of Shemung was completely destroyed. 40 houses were burned. The fields were burned, the orchards. After they burned the entire city to the ground, they marched back to Tioga and began to build Fort Sullivan.
0: And you have to remember that 40 houses doesn't sound like a lot, but remember, longhouses are very big things. So this village most likely had several hundred, maybe even thousand people living in it at this time. A lot of
1: longhouses, Andrew, the big ones could have over 100 people in them. So if you think of 40 houses and each of them with 100 people in it, Most likely they weren't all that big, but still, just to give you an idea, there could be potentially thousands of people. Sullivan dug in and he
0: began to get worried about his reinforcements. He thought that he would have seen Clinton by now. And sometimes when you're waiting for somebody and you know what's happened in the past to different armies trying to go through hostile wilderness territory, he's thinking the worst. Maybe he's been ambushed, maybe he's dead, maybe he's been delayed, or who knows what's going on.
1: Clinton was determined not to let his commanding general down. Clinton was an engineer by trade, and while Sullivan was preparing his men for the march up through Pennsylvania, Clinton was damming the outlet to Lake Otsego, which is modern-day Cooperstown, New York. And also while damming the lake, he built 120 boats. So as soon as he got word from Sullivan that it was time to meet, he could break the dam to the lake and float all the supplies down the river. No. Yeah, and that's the Susquehanna River.
0: So, like, he's just waiting and then he does an artificial flood to, like, purposely push them all the way down at high speed?
1: Exactly. And it hadn't been raining for over a week. So, when a lot of the villages that lived on this tributary, the Otsego outlet is one of the main tributaries to the Susquehanna River, when all of a sudden it it floods with no rain, a lot of people took it as a bad omen and that, you know, the great spirit was angry, so a lot of people got the heck out of Dodge. So Clinton and all his men and supplies were able to float right down to Tioga, completely unharmed. And on August 22nd, Clinton and Sullivan's forces joined at Tioga.
0: A few days later, on August 26th, combined forces started moving towards Cayuga Territory. And as I mentioned before, the same time Colonel Butler and Chief Brandt are heading back from these raids out east, to begin to assemble an army there to make a stand. And it's quite a conglomeration. They've got Tory loyalists, Iroquois members from the different Six Nations, Delaware, different redcoat officers, and they pick a sharp crest rising along the Chemung River, and they hoped that they picked the right spot to pitch a battle.
1: Yeah, they were basically guessing which direction Sullivan was gonna come, and they just set up and said, okay, we're gonna wait here for Sullivan. And they waited all night, on the 27th and then all day long on the 28th and what was looking like going to be all day on the 29th. And a lot of people started to get bored. They were thinking maybe we picked the wrong spot. Maybe they're not coming now. People aren't really sticking to their posts as well as they should be. Everybody's in full camouflage ready for an attack and they're just waiting and getting bored.
0: So they're thinking maybe Sullivan took a different way.
1: Yeah. But Sullivan... Once again, taking advice from Washington, had his best Oneida scouts and his best uh, American foresters going with them and climbing trees and looking down and constantly uh, spying and being quiet. One of his spies climbs a tree and sees a very brightly red painted Indian just waiting up on the cliff to ambush somebody. So he instantly sends word to Sullivan that it's a trap. And this gives Sullivan the time he needs to encircle the trap and try to uh, set his own trap.
0: So he sends men to pull around, gets his small cannons out to one side, while the main force tries to push into a triangle to totally surround and pinch them off.
1: Which sounds like a really great idea, but like always... On paper, drawing a triangle of you surrounding a forces with your cannons and your men doesn't actually work when you're in the woods with rivers and valleys and things like that.
0: If you've ever seen the Chemung River, it's a very uh, shallow river with a lot of sandbars and there's a lot of hills and ridges in between, so it really is not ideal for moving cannons around. So there is a bit of action that takes place, like Caleb said, they're not totally able to get into position. So while the fighting is going on, the Native Americans and the Loyalists are able to punch their way out. We don't know exactly how many of Brant and Butler's men were killed because a lot of them, they actually carried out the wounded or the bodies. Sullivan lost about a dozen men and had 50 wounded. Butler would later say this,
1: Sullivan's soldiers are some of the best of the Continental Troops commanded by the most active of the rebel generals. They move with the greatest caution and regularity and are more formidable than you. And he's writing this to the
0: current commander of... Fort Niagara.
1: So he he literally tells him, Sullivan has better men than you have, so don't go and face him in the field.
0: The Continental troops continue, and on August 31st, they come to another village, and they burn all the corn at a town called Kanawahala. And that's modern-day Elmira, New York. And then they start the march towards Catherine's Town, which is modern-day Catherine's Town. Hey, a place actually kind of still has its name, even though that's not the name they called it. But it's just below modern-day Watkins Glen on Lake Seneca.
1: And this village was run by an Iroquois woman, a clan mother most likely referred to as Queen Catherine.
0: If you remember all the way back in our episode on Haudenosaunee diplomacy, we talked about Catherine Montour. Well, this is her family that's helping to run this place. It was probably a grandniece or a granddaughter. The genealogy's kind of screwed up, but it was definitely a relative of theirs. But when they got to what we would call today Watkins Glen at Catherine's Town, they find it deserted. Nothing but cows, horses, pigs, and one poor old Native American Seneca woman.
1: Sullivan's men began burning the entire town, over 30 houses, dozens of fields and orchards. They burned everything, Andrew, except for one cabin, which Sullivan left for the old lady. But before leaving, he stockpiled it with food. So say what you want about Sullivan. Maybe he is a bloodthirsty murderer, but here's one good thing that we can see documented that he did. He actually, on top of leaving her house, made sure that she had a uh, 6 weeks supply of food in her house.
0: And we're going to talk about this more after we cover the campaign, but you have to remember, what time of year is this happening, Caleb? Peak summer. Yes, this is August 31st. We're talking September. This is all the crops are either just being harvested or in the fields. So what's happening to these towns once the fields are destroyed? We're going to be looking at mass starvation because there's not going to be any food for the winter. We recall that The Haudenosaunee took it as a habit to make sure that they stored at least three years' worth of food in their towns. Well, that's great, but what happens if literally all your towns are destroyed?
1: Also, we said things were already on a stalemate point for the British, and that's with the Iroquois providing them with the majority of their food. But now, all of these Iroquois villages are going to be retreating to British forts and begging for food, And the British all of a sudden aren't going to be able to supply it. And then people are going to start to say to Brant and other people, we've sided with you on this and now the British aren't helping
0: us after we've been sending them food for the past three years. But we're getting ahead of ourselves because Sullivan has just started his rampage. He's only burned a couple towns so far. So as he continues marching, he's going up and down the Finger Lakes area. I'd really encourage you guys to get and look at a map. The Finger Lakes is some of the most, in our opinion, I mean, we're a little partial since it's our uh, homeland, but the Finger Lakes are absolutely beautiful. And they are 11 lakes, and they look like fingers, and they run north to south. And it makes pristine growing environment for a lot of stuff. And so they start traveling up and down these lakes, burning village after village after village. So
1: he burned something, he burned dozens of villages. Andrew and I are only going to point out the main villages. But how it basically worked is as he marched, they might see a small village of a couple longhouses and fields, and he would send 50 men to go to take care of that, and then they would come back. So we're going to try and stick to the main force, because otherwise it would take too long. Also, there's a lot of debate. I've looked at uh, over a dozen maps, Andrew, and uh, they all say, they all map out his route slightly different. So you can tell that even
0: a lot of the historians aren't quite sure exactly which routes he took. I would argue to say that General Sullivan is probably the most memorialized person in western New York. And the reason I say that is, if you go through the Finger Lakes region, every single town you go into, you're going to find a plaque dedicated to General Sullivan and General Clinton. I think we have three in Canandaigua alone.
1: And every single one of those plaques say here was such and such an Indian village that was burned. Yes. So it just makes you, blows your mind how many villages and cities there were.
0: Yeah, over 40 he ends up torturing by the time this gets done. As he's marching up uh, Lake Cayuga, they burn some place that has like 400 fruit trees in an orchard. And we're talking hundreds of acres of uh, corn and beans and squash. It's just staggering the amount of food, not only towns that were destroyed. He begins to start to hold a lot of his men off though, Andrew,
1: because he knows that he's going to be walking back through this area maybe a month down the road. And so he wants to make sure that there's some food left for his army on the return journey, if heaven forbid they live to return.
0: So they start to push north from Watkins Glen because that's on the south end of Seneca Lake. And Seneca Lake, how long is that? About 30 miles long?
1: Yeah, I would say it's somewhere around there. It's They say it's technically the second biggest finger lake, but I think in water
0: volume, it's actually the biggest. Because it's deeper. Yes, because it's deeper than Cayuga, but it's a big stinking lake. And so they march all the way up and they're heading towards Canada Saga, which we call today Geneva. And that's where the main Seneca castle was.
1: Yeah, there's even a village called Seneca Castle. It's just north of Geneva. But that those small differences mean things to people that live in western New York. But to those of you in the rest of the world, Geneva is something you can find on a map a little better.
0: But as Sullivan is approaching Canada Saga, he suspects that maybe there's an ambush here because, you know, well, this is their main city. Perhaps they'll make a stand here.
1: They believe it was the biggest city in all of Seneca territory and Brant and Butler are trying their best to convince everyone in the city to help them have an ambush and fight. But I don't know about you, Andrew, if I knew that there was up to 5,000 enemies coming, and I had my wife and kids in the city, and we were completely outnumbered, my interest would probably be getting my family the heck out of Dodge, which is exactly what everyone else in the village thought, too. They said, I'm not going to go fight because then what's going to happen? My wife and kids are going
0: to be left here and we probably don't have enough men to defeat them anyway. I can't emphasize enough. Just try to imagine yourself in this situation. Not only are you trying to flee for your lives, you're trying to get as much food in your backpacks as you can. Can you imagine leaving and expecting that my entire home and entire community is going to be burned? It just staggers the mind. That's the reality that these people were having to deal with. And they can flee to one town. But they know that Sullivan's just going to keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. So they could go to one town, but they've got to get as far away from here as they can. So Sullivan puts the torch to the city that we call today Geneva. It has about 80 houses, which again, we're looking at could be up to several thousand people living there. And then he turns his eye to the west because the next town is Caleb in my hometown, Canadegua.
1: And Canadegua is a sister lake to Seneca Lake. You can basically look on a map and you'll see the lakes all sitting right next to each other, just like if you laid your hand flat on the table. And at the north end of both lakes are these two sister cities. And when he arrives on September 9th in Canadegua, he finds kind of an eerie sight on the houses at Canadegua. How so? Well, they walk up to the houses, Andrew, and there's signs hung from all of the walls. And the signs read... He who destroys this house, his offspring will suffer for it. For it, for it, for it. Probably with a creepy echo as they read it too. In English? Yes, it was written in English. And the men noted that the houses were elegant. It's, I, I really wish that we had some sketches or pictures because we, we have pictures of longhouses. We hear about all these elegant longhouses that were built in the late 1700s. And it sounds like they were more like a modern colonial house, long house hybrid. They say a lot of them had windows and trim work. And, and hinged doors. Hinged doors, modern fireplaces and things like that. I wish that somewhere we had a picture or a sketching of one of these. But all of the soldiers noted in their logs that the houses were very elegant.
0: So they saw the writing and they decided not to burn these houses because they didn't want the curse put on them? No, they burned all of the houses. Oh. Huh. That's crazy to think. I had never heard that before today, and uh, we've lived in Canadegua our whole lives. Now,
1: while the town was burning, Andrew, only a few miles south of there, right at the north end of Canadegua Lake, the women and the children were being shuttled by canoe to Squaw
0: Island on Canadegua Lake. Uh, Squaw Island is kind of unique. There's only two islands in the whole Finger Lake system, and Squaw Island is one of them. Today, they've kind of been able to preserve it by putting boulders down to help prevent it from erosion. At the time, it was much bigger than the small little spot that's left of it today.
1: If you're ever in Canada, I would drive around the pier and you can see the island and you'll see another one of those plaques that we talked about right there at the end of the pier.
0: As you drive into the pier, there's a monument for Sullivan and Clinton.
1: And luckily, Sullivan didn't know that everyone was down just a few miles away. So he decided to continue his march to the very next
0: of the Finger on the Finger Lakes, Lake Honeyway, and he arrived there on September 12th. And once again, he finds it totally abandoned. This time, he finds that there's fires still burning and food actually in the pots cooking. That's how quickly they had to get out of there.
1: He decides that this will be a good place to leave his weak and wounded
0: men. Yeah, Sullivan, when he stops in Honeyoy, he considers that this would be a good place to uh, leave his sick and lame and, as he puts it, and lazy men and leave them there before he returns. And as we say in Canadagua, what's the saying that we say to this day, Caleb? And they're all still there to this day. And they're all still <laughs> there to this day. We like to make a jab at Honeyoy because that's what's written on their plaque there. The yeah, sick, the is- lame, the lazy. <laughs>
1: We have family from Honeyway too, so don't think we're just picking on you because, because Canadeg was so much of a nicer lake. We can't help it. Honeyway. The problem with Honeyway Lake, guys, is it's so shallow that it gets all swampy and gross and it has so many bugs. But Canadaigua is so deep and clean and clear. For some reason, the people who live on Canadeg Lake just think they're better than the people on Honeyway Lake. And Sullivan leaving his weak and sick and lazy there didn't help anything. So where did you say Sullivan's off to next? He's off for the famed castle of Genesee. Rumor has it, it's the largest castle in Iroquois. And he decides that uh, he'll put it to the test and see if he can take it. Now Sullivan is looking at his map and his watch, and he figures General Broadhead should be showing up from Fort Pitt at any time now. He was marching north from there, which should put him somewhere in western New York. So he figured, I'll go and attack the castle at Genesee and hopefully meet Broadhead and we can take this campaign
0: all the way up to Fort Niagara, where the British are stationed. So instead of heading straight for Geneseo, Sullivan leads his men south between Lake Hemlock and Lake Canisius. And he's thinking that if he comes up from the south, he can surprise them because before this, he's been going across the northern end of the lakes. But somebody has burned a bridge.
1: That's right, Butler, who has been fleeing with everybody from city to city, has found himself at the castle at Genesee. And he burns the one bridge leading from the south up to the Genesee castle. And it's so hard for us to picture back then before there were roads, how difficult it would be to travel through a swamp. And without this bridge, it would force Sullivan's army to march through the swamp. And can you imagine marching, you know, maybe 15 miles through water that's from ankle deep all the way up to your waist in the middle of summer with the mosquitoes and everything, and then try to keep your powder dry while doing it.
0: And then you still have no idea how many Seneca are waiting for you at Genesee Castle.
1: So Sullivan, instead of pushing through the swamp, he decided that he will have his trusty engineers that are with him, most likely Clinton, rebuild the bridge.
0: And while he's doing this, he decides to send out one of his young lieutenants, a man named Boyd, along with Chief Han Yost, who is the uh, brother or possibly half-brother of Han Yeri, who was the husband of two kettles together.
1: Now, just to throw this out there, I had been reading for weeks and I had it in my head that this was Han Yeri, the same Han Yeri that Andrew and I have mentioned in the past five episodes or maybe longer. And it turns out a lot of people thought that it was the Han Yeri that was mentioned in these other battles because... A lot of times they used the same name. But now historians are almost positive that this was actually a relative of his that had a similar name.
0: And we have mentioned Han Yost before. He was one of the guys that when Burgoyne and St. Ledger's forces had come down, he had gone with Lewis Cook, the, uh, mo- the black Mohawk man, and they had helped spy for the Americans. But anyway, Han Yost and Boyd and a group of scouts decide to head out but Sullivan gives them strict orders not to draw any attention to themselves and don't go out and try and take any scalps or get any prizes. Just spy on the fort and be back in the morning. And, I mean, Sullivan has listened to Washington's orders, so surely his lieutenant's going to listen to orders. But this
1: young lieutenant boy did not quite listen to everything Sullivan said. As soon as he was on his own, him being an officer, he began to give his own orders instead of following orders. And he started by recruiting 26 chosen men to come with him. And I don't know about you, Andrew, but if I'm trying to do a secret spy mission, 27 men plus the Oneida scouts that are with him, it's kind of hard to hide
0: 30, 35, 40 people and a secret mission. So they do come to a small Seneca village and it appears that it's abandoned. They watch and they wait. And then suddenly they hear hoof prints. And there's four Seneca riding into the village.
1: This is not the village they're supposed to be spying on. They're supposed to be spying on the castle at Genesee, Geneseo, New York.
0: Also called Little Beard's Town.
1: And so the, the smart thing to do would be to let these Seneca that are riding through go. But Boyd gives the order to open fire and so all of his men open fire and they kill one of the four. Meanwhile, the other three are able to run back to the castle at Genesee and tell them that they're here.
0: Yeah, I guess it would make sense to open fire if they were all walking because you could capture them and stop them from getting word out. But if they're on horseback, you got to make sure that you get them all and you only get one and three make it back. And so now the entire force of the Senecas and Cayugas and all the British Loyalists know where you're at? Yeah, that's not good.
1: So Boyd, after ordering them to open fire and three of them escaping back, he decides it's time for himself to fall back to Sullivan.
0: But little did he know that the Seneca were already wise and they were rushing 400 men around to try and cut him off. That's right. And Han Yost, he looks through the woods with
1: his, you know, brilliant woodsman's eyes and he can see what's going on as
0: boyd is heading back he sees another small group of uh, local seneca and british allied people he decides to attack them as well but han yost is shouting no you fool it's a trap so they t- pay no mind they follow after him think that they've got this small group on the run meanwhile they're enveloped by 400 different men meanwhile back at camp sullivan's wondering what happened to his scouts
1: sullivan's waiting and waiting and his it's everything's just gone quiet the bridge is rebuilt at that point and sullivan's forces begin moving north towards the castle and the woods are just so quiet they're wondering where are the scouts where are the scouts what is going on and then they see a haunting sight andrew bodies swaying in the trees and as they get closer They recognize the faces of the men, and the first one they see is Han Yost, chief of the Oneida.
0: They continue to walk down, and they actually see just individual arms and legs hanging in the tree. Then find the other Oneida scouts that had gone with Boyd's men. But a couple people were missing, a man named Parker and the leader of the scouting party, Boyd. They weren't with the other bodies. This is what happened to them. Right away during the ambush, 14 men are killed, a few escape. Han Yost is scalped, his body is dismembered, they flail him, peel his skin off, and then Boyd and Parker are taken alive to uh, what we would call today modern Kylerville, which is where Little Beard's Town was. It's just a couple miles south of modern-day Geneseo. Apparently, Butler questioned them, and then he turned the men over to the Seneca and Joseph Brandt who were none too happy about Americans burning down every single town of theirs. i struggling to think what I would do with the men that burned everybody I know's house and home and food. Um, how lenient would we be? But they were not lenient at all. To start, they had the two men stand in front of a, a big oak tree. They started cutting off their fingers and toes one by one to get them to move. And they uh, cut their bellies open. And they pulled out parts of their entrails. They had their intestines nailed to the oak tree. And as they were tortured to keep going, they were forced to walk around the tree, little by little, slowly and slowly. As that happened, their guts began to be pulled out more and more. And you know that inside you, everything's connected. So one thing comes out and the next thing comes out. Finally, they collapse and die in a horrible way. They have their heads cut off, they're skinned, they bore out their eyes, and they mount them as a warning to everybody else. And this is the sight that Sullivan sees when he comes in. Uh, by this time, the Seneca know what's up. They abandon the town. Sullivan comes in, he torches the whole thing along with 20,000 bushels of corn and 128 large, elegant houses. That's a pretty graphic picture, Caleb. Something I really don't like picturing. The uh, tree is still there to this day. There is a park in Kylerville, and I'm going to post some pictures on our Facebook page. It's a massive, several hundred-year-old oak tree. Absolutely huge. One other thing of note is, do you know who lived At this Genesee castle at the time, Caleb? No. Mary Jemison. Ah. If you remember all the way back in the French and Indian War, she was a young woman who was captured and ended up making her home with the Seneca and chose to stay and live the Seneca life.
1: And we plan on doing an episode about her in the future, so that's why Andrew's bringing the name up now.
0: So she writes in her uh, biography all about this event, and so she talks about the fear of trying to evacuate with everybody else while this happens, So it's great firsthand accounts of what actually went down from the Seneca perspective. The interesting thing is, Boyd ends up getting himself horribly killed along with all his other men, but this may have actually helped the campaign.
1: That's right, Andrew. Um, Dr. Carl Stevens has a, a book, and it's called uh, Neither the, the Charm Nor the Luck, and it's about Sullivan's campaign. And in his book, he points out that this attack on the 400 ambushers most likely triggered the ambush early and they were planning on attacking the entire body of Sullivan's expedition. But in doing so, they were satisfied with the, the 40 men that Boyd had had. And as soon as they were done torching them, they got their families and continued to march away. So it's kind of interesting to think what would have happened if Sullivan didn't have this force go out and they had got caught just like Braddock had gotten caught Even though they outnumbered them, when you're drawn out over six miles a lot of times, when you have a force of 5,000 men, you're drawn out over six miles. So
0: 400 people can attack any spot in that column and most likely be victorious. On September 16th, Sullivan realizes that we're not getting any reinforcements from Fort Pitt. So rather than continuing into the wilderness and risking some kind of ambush or counterattack, It's best for us to return to Tioga in Pennsylvania.
1: Also, remember, it's mid-September now. If he takes it to Niagara, that'll put him most likely into mid-October, and then he'll have at least a month's march back, and you're getting really close to winter at that point.
0: The last thing you want to be doing is besieging a stone castle in the winter. On September 16th, he backtracks and he picks his men up from Honeyoy. He's able to find several prisoners who've been rounded up in the area, And at that time, a man named Bluebeck from the Oneida shows up. He comes with a message that the Oneida have expressed great joy on the account of your success. Other pro-American Mohawk and Oneida have sent messages along as well with Bluebeck saying that they pledged to travel and help Sullivan on their expedition. Sullivan kind of graciously says, "Um, I'm on my way back now. So if you guys want to act as scouts and guides, I guess I could use you, but I'm good man. Blue and a couple of night I decide to stay and help him, but the rest of them decide to just turn around and head home.
1: Now on the return journey, Andrew, now that all of the Iroquois and Tory forces have been driven out of Western New York, this gives Sullivan's forces the freedom to split up without fear of being ambushed. So on the return journey, they're going to split up into dozens of different forces and cover a lot more ground burning, any
0: villages and farms that they missed on their way up. Other people in New York take advantage of this, realizing that the Iroquois have had to flee to Niagara. Peter Gansevoort out in central New York takes 100 men and is able to capture the southern Mohawk castle near Albany. Colonel
1: William Butler, not to be confused with the Colonel Butler fighting for the British, was one of Sullivan's colonels, And he split off of Sullivan and took 600 men down the east side of Lake Cayuga.
0: Meanwhile, Colonel Henry Dearborn leads a different 200 men down the west side of Lake Cayuga, which again, remember, these are not small lakes. These are massive. I think Cayuga's over 30 miles long. And Sullivan and the remainder of his force travel down the west side of Seneca Lake, where they come back to Tioga. But Sullivan has to make a couple more stops. That's
1: right, Andrew. Sullivan has one more important stop to make before he gets back to Tioga. He stops by Catherine's town, the the town where we said the one old lady was left, and he stopped by to see how she was doing and left her with enough food to get through the winter that was getting close upon them. The people wrote in their logs that uh, she started crying because she was so thankful, but yet, you know, I I can't imagine the different emotions you have. You have this enemy come in, burns your village, but then at the same time, he shows you mercy and... I think it's one of the best moments of the entire campaign because you really get to see the human element of it. So often, whenever people are at war with anybody, you instantly start to dehumanize them, make them subhuman so that way you can uh, be okay with what you're doing and live with yourself. And you get to see here the human side from both things. He's trying to follow orders, but there's also a place for humanity in this. So she begins crying and Sullivan begins crying And then all the men start crying. And then all those men start crying. And, you know, I think that I probably would too. You've just done this great heroic deed, and you've just done this horrible thing that most likely is going to cost thousands of people their lives over the next winter.
0: So as Sullivan leaves this uh, sentimental moment, they travel down to just outside of Corning, New York, and a lot of their pack horses are absolutely exhausted, so much so that they have to start shooting them. Yeah, they actually have to put down over a hundred horses, Andrew. Interesting side note. The following year, we don't know why because we don't have it from the other perspective, but some of the Seneca that are in the area see all the horses. And when they come down, they find all the skeletons. And so they take the skulls from all these equestrian beasts and they stack them up and line them on the path. And so the area became known as horse heads which is the name of the town to this day.
1: You know, as a kid growing up, I always thought it was a stupid name for a town. Why
0: the heck is the town called Horseheads? But if you ever drive through Horseheads, New York, that is why. To the Oneida and the Americans, this is a big celebration. They uh, start distributing rum, uh, fat oxen are slaughtered, they have a whole grand party, and the Iroquois campaign of 1779 is over.
1: So the campaign is over, but... What the heck ever happened with those men coming up from Fort Pitt?
0: Well, let's get into that. Daniel Broadhead and eight Delaware Scouts and 700 men, their goal is to march up north from Fort Pitt. Remember, Fort Pitt is on the forks of the Ohio, so you can go three different ways on three different rivers. And so if you take the northern route, you can go up the Allegheny, which leads through Pennsylvania into southern New York into the Allegheny Mountains. He sets out with 30-day supplies, More than enough. And he decides that he'll start following the river right into Seneca territory. But then he thinks, you know what? If I get off the river here, there's a path. And I think that's a shortcut. I think I could easily cut a day's march off by taking this path. Well, it's one thing to take a path if you're walking somewhere. It's another thing taking a path when you know what it is and you're not traveling with 700 men, with baggage, on a path. So one of his men writes grumbling We proceeded by a blind path, through a country almost impassable, by reason of stupendous heights and frightful desivities. With a range over craggy hills and overspread with fallen timber, thorns and underwood, whose deep, impenetrable gloom has always been impervious to the piercing rays of the warmest sun.
1: Wow, was this guy a poet? Some (laughs) of the words he used there were... uh...
0: A little more, a bigger vocabulary than I picture a soldier having. I think he said that he did not enjoy the march, (laughs) and they got lost. Finally, they are able to rediscover the Allegheny River, and Broadhead's men continue north into Seneca Territory. And they're coming in within about four miles of a Delaware village called Buckaloons, just off uh, a small creek called Broken Straw. The Americans have thinned out at this time. They're stretched out over a mile. This is right in the modern Allegheny National Forest. The militia kind of know that, hey, if we get attacked, we have no idea where to even retreat to. So they start trying to form up, figure out some way to get to any kind of town. Their primary focus was to attack the Mingo towns of this region. We haven't talked a lot about the Mingo since uh, Pontiac's uprising, but these are mainly Seneca and Cayuga and other mixtures of Iroquois prop nations that have lived here now for over a hundred years. And they are firmly within the British camp. So finally, they kind of bump into, accidentally, a hunting party of these mingo. Gayasuta is in the area at this time, and he's also fighting for the British. So when the forces get together, they're actually in the middle of the river, and they're on an island and it's called the Battle of Thompson's Island. It's a small skirmish. It's probably about 40 Mingo against this force, and there's a few casualties on each side, but immediately they start hooting, and hollering at each other, and they try to make a parley, but they decide, nah, let's not do it. The fighting lasts for maybe 10 minutes. A few men are killed on each side. Same thing with Sullivan. After this, the word is out. All the villages in the area start evacuating and heading north up to Fort Niagara. They come in and they burn a few villages, some of them rather substantial. On the way back, Broadhead is able to point out that they took thousands of pounds worth of merchandise and animals. Uh, Some very good stuff. Remember, at this time, Native American villages were stocked with a lot of very modern conveniences. So it wasn't just like they were living in these wood huts with no modern technology. They had pots and pans and money, clothing, and anything else you can think of. They uh, also bump into uh, John Montour, who was a descendant of Catherine Montour. Remember that whole family were known as diplomats, uh, Andrew Montour, Catherine Montour. They were all part Seneca, mixed race people and he helps them with translating. They burn corn and fields and villages. And when they finally return to Fort Pitt, they sell the merchandise for $30,000. Wow. So a lot of stuff. But in the end, he never ends up hooking up with Sullivan. He kind of does his own thing and figures, eh, good enough.
1: I wonder knowing that you have $30,000
0: worth of goods, he just wanted to get back and sell it and get the money. So let's kind of step back and look at where Iroquois stands after this, Caleb, because we've seen invasions from the French and from the British and attacks from the Dutch and attacks from the Huron and attacks from the Erie and attacks from the Susquehannock over the last several hundred years. But how does this compare to other attacks and invasions we've seen over the centuries?
1: Well, the big difference right away was even though some of these attacks and defeats in the past were terribly difficult on their society, they always had each other. You know, I picture it like my family. You know, in my house, I got my wife and my kids and I have my parents. And if I get sick or something happens to me, somebody can step in and take care of the kids or my wife. But now that you have the civil war going out amongst Iroquois, they've been delivered this huge blow by having all of Cayuga and Seneca territories burned. Meanwhile, the Mohawk have been all bottled in between Albany and the other colonial and British forces surrounding them, you've separated the nation at this point. So people cannot fall back to their families and other villages to be supported through the hard times anymore. So we're going to see, even though there wasn't a ton of people killed in battles themselves,
0: this is going to be a blow that is going to be very hard to overcome. So with the inundation of refugees heading to Fort Niagara, and we're talking thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people, thousands of people are going to die of starvation and cold and disease over the winter. And again, just like most of the winters we've seen here, the winters are hard and brutal, cold. They fled with all they had. They don't have blankets. They don't have clothing. They don't have shoes.
1: This past week, it has been very cold here in western New York. A lot of times the high was uh, around zero degrees Fahrenheit. And I've been unwell this past week with a bronchitis uh, or a mild flu. And, you know, it made me wonder if I was out in this time period, this time of year, even with this bronchitis, I would most likely be dead. Eh, we're so blessed to live in a day and age where you can take a couple of days off from work eat some soup in a warm house, but imagine being these people that have just had their, not just their city, but all of the surrounding
0: cities burned to the ground. Everyone you know is homeless now. It's just something that we can't even fathom and think about. And the British are totally overwhelmed. As Caleb said, the Iroquois have been supporting the British in this war. And now the British at Fort Niagara is an isolated post at this time. It's not like there's fields outside of Fort Niagara. It's not like it's easy to transport food there. And kind of Washington's plan was part of this to force the British to re-divert supplies to Niagara to feed the Iroquois to uh, prevent them from raising more troops and more armies from the north. So what did they call this? A spectacular failure? because their objective was not met to take Fort Niagara. Yeah,
1: there was actually a book written. I I bought it. Have you read it? No. There's a book written called The Spectacular Failure about this, and I wanted to read it before we did this episode, but it hasn't come in the mail yet. It's a rarer book, so I had to actually buy it. I couldn't download it anywhere. I'll let you all know how it is. But yeah, they call it The Spectacular Failure because his actual mission was to make it to Niagara, and he he never made it. But the amount of damage that he did just making it to the Genesee River was enough to, you could make the argument, turn the tide in the war.
0: To this day, the name Sullivan Clinton is an anathema to a lot of members of the Six Nations because of what they did. And, I mean, honestly, if I was a Seneca or Cayuga person, I would feel a lot of animosity for what happened to my ancestors as well. To use a poor example... A lot of people down in Georgia consider Sherman anathema because he came through and he burned everybody's homes, everybody's fields. He had the same kind of mentality, torched earth, make sure that the common people don't have any food to give to the army. And the South was wrong. Slavery is very bad, horrible institution that has no place in our modern society or our past society. But to the Southerners that were losing their homes that never owned a slave in their life, they felt that Sherman was a bad dude. It's hard for the people who
1: are having their house burned to say, well, I can understand why they're doing this. You know, this is a strategic battle. So luckily us, hundreds of years later, we can try and look at it from both sides. But I'm so glad that at least at this part in my life, I haven't had to be the one experiencing something like this.
0: So next time, Caleb, I don't know if we'll be able to wrap up the American Revolution. We're going to try and do it next time. Might not be possible. This does not put the Seneca and Cayuga and Mohawk out of the war one bit. Their warriors are out for blood and revenge. And we're going to see that even after Yorktown, Brant is running all over the United States, even into Kentucky and Indiana, causing trouble for the Americans. But before we go today, Caleb, we've got a lot of stuff to talk about and people to thank.
1: That's true. Andrew and I, we try to mention our new clan members at the end of every episode but last episode we we had a time
0: crunch so we weren't able to so we're going to do that now first up we have a review from the united kingdom and caleb in his usual fashion will make fun of our loyal listeners reading in a horrible british accent what i don't know what you're talking about andrew i just read it with my
1: natural voice I've been waiting for a well-written presentation podcast about the native peoples of North America. These two brother presenters provide a clear and easy listening show, and I am chewing through the episodes to catch up. I can't recommend it highly enough. Love, Lord UK. Thank you, sir. Welcome to the clan. Oh, Andrew, we also have a new one from
0: uh, Australia. Yes, but he specifically said, do not read it in a horrible accent. What? What? Crikey. We also have Mark E. Johnson 66, Undressed Historical Pod from America. We have a new Canadian review by Petty Avenger. We also have AP Push 13. Also, Amy C. from Canada, Ohio. That that was the user's name, Ohio. R. Wordy, History Son, Poison Purdue, Red Mary, and Lord Wankerton. If you're from a foreign country and want us to brutally massacre your name, but we do it in love, you can leave us an iTunes review. If you're from America, well, we can't horribly massacre it.
1: We already speak with the perfect American accent, so there's there's not really anything we can do to sap. Maybe if we had some Southerners on there, that could be fun. Mm. But we really do appreciate the reviews, guys. Andrew and I do this show, you'll notice, with no ads from start to finish, and we do it because we love history and we feel like this is a neglected part of American history. So leaving those reviews basically gives us the encouragement we need to keep doing it.
0: You can also email us at longhousepodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook. We're getting real close to a thousand likes on Facebook, Andrew, so that's pretty cool. You can also follow us on Twitter with the handle at Iroquois History, or you can check out our podcast, www.longhousepodcast.com. And we will see you guys next time as we try to wrap up the Iroquois
1: influence in the American Revolution. Bye, everybody. So long.